they just have trouble grasping the idea that the neuroscientists may have no clue what the neural basis of memory is. Right? <laughs> they, they, they have to, you know, I, I have more training in neuroscience than most of them do. And believe me, from the inside, <laughs> for someone who's been going to meetings, listening to neuroscientists talk about learning and memory <laughs> for more than half a century, when I go these days, I sit there and I think, this is the same shit I was listening to when I was in graduate school. <laughs> I think, you know, this science is not progressing. <laughs> Unlike molecular biology, right? I mean, molecular biology is almost entirely taken place during my adult thing. And I mean, it's been one revelation after the next. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So a couple days ago, I released the first half of my conversation with Randy Gallistel. Actually, it was the second part of the conversation, actually, as, as it played out. But it basically covered a little bit more detail on the theories that he has brought to bear in the neuroscience community, which have engendered so much uh, an anger and, um, you know, have, have really poked, poked the bear, so to speak, in terms of, of, of making neuroscientists feel uncomfortable. And then this episode is, is all about the backstory about sort of how that developed for Randy and what his formative experiences were. And I felt they just, they, they felt like substantively different conversations, both of them interesting, uh, but potentially, you know, uh, someone could be interested more so in one or the other. And so, so I split them up here. So um, thank you uh, for, for listening. If you do want to check out my work, uh, you can do so on my Substack newsletter. That is codycommers.substack.com. That's the best place to keep up with everything I'm doing, all my writing, all my podcasting. And uh, yeah, so uh, Randy was super fun to talk to. He likes uh, just sort of, you know... Uh, <laughs> I guess you could say shooting the shit about uh, scientific history and, and, you know, the things he's seen, the people he's been around. And it's just sort of fun to hear him go on about it. So uh, thank you for listening. Without any further ado, here is the second part of my conversation with Randy Galliston. So I guess the first question that I want to ask is, can you remember the, the first time that you you can recall getting really excited about an idea. So it could be a book you read or stumbled upon as a child or a course you took an undergraduate, some sort of research experience, some, you know, formative kind of experience that stuck with you. What was, what was the first time you can remember getting really excited about an idea? I think at a certain level, I was always excited about ideas. I was very into reading and my uh, parents uh, talked about all kinds of things at the dinner table and encouraged uh, us to participate. But the uh, when I think first, uh, certainly the first, I think, although it wasn't the same level of excitement, uh, when I first read uh, Clark Hull, I was excited about his vision of a mathematical theory of the mind. Um, that excitement was tempered pretty rapidly by the fact that even back then, when I was, I don't know, a sophomore, perhaps in college, 
I could see that there were parts of it that were very naive and that, and a lot of the mathematics was sort of naive and for show more than really substantive. Um, I, uh, I remember being incredibly impressed and excited. I, uh, I sort of imprinted on um, Tony Deutsch, uh, who came from Oxford, was a lecturer at Oxford, <clears throat> and got his degree there, if I recall correctly. And I worked in his lab at Stanford as an undergraduate. And Tony was an enormously smart guy. Everyone, he was one of these people when anyone who met him thought, whoa, this is one smart guy. Um, and he had uh, the idea that um, uh, not only was I very excited about it when he came in and, uh, and said his idea, um, but it, uh, I continued to work on that idea until well after I was a tenured faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania. So it informed my uh, PhD work and even more my subsequent work. So I kind of lived off that idea for quite a long, for decades. And uh, the idea was that he could measure the refraction. We were, in those days, brain stimulation reward was very hot. Um, it was fairly newly discovered by James Olds, who believed that he was going to get a Nobel Prize for it, but he didn't. Um, and, uh, but it was very hot and because it's a fantastic phenomenon. If you've ever seen a self-stimulating rat, you think, whoa, look at that. <laughs> they really love that stimulation. Um, and, um, he had the idea that he could use the behavior of the animal to measure the refractory period of the neurons whose stimulation had got the rat so excited. And I just thought that was the cleverest damn thing I ever heard of. I remember going around thinking, God, if only I could someday think of something like that. Um, and in fact, it worked like gangbusters. He did it. And the results that he got were highly replicable. Uh, I and my students replicated them several times subsequently using different behavioral paradigms. Um, so that was uh, using the behavior to get at the neurobiology in that way, to, to establish a quantitative constraint on the underlying neural mechanism. That was what I learned from Tony Deutsch, and this was a particular instance of it, and it's been a foundation of the way I thought about things ever since. Yeah, so you mentioned Tony Deutsch. Uh is, is are there any other mentors or teachers that had the biggest influence on your work? And you know, uh, whoever it is, whether Tony or, or someone else, what are the things that you you got from them, and that you know, sort of that stuck stuck with you in terms of the way you conduct your science or the specific scientific ideas themselves? Right. So. None of them is in the same league with uh, Tony Deutsch. I really imprinted on him, and he had a huge impact on the way I thought and on what I did for, as I said, for decades. Um, I have to admit that my graduate student advisors didn't have much of an impact. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> after I passed my PhD defense, they took me to lunch, and they complained that I hadn't... <laughs> 
been sufficiently influenced by them. That's partly because I could have written my thesis proposal the day I entered graduate school. It was based four square on these ideas of Tony Deutsch. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you came Uh, into graduate school kind of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is the, this is Yeah, that was absolutely the case. Yeah. And and that was clear. And as a, partly as a result, I finished my graduate work in three years. Right. So, uh, and, and yeah, I, I was a Deutschman from beginning to end. Uh, however, when I got to the inter, I was very fortunate uh, that to be, uh, go directly from Yale to an assistant professorship at the University of Pennsylvania. And the psychology department there was a very exciting place in those days. And several of my colleagues, uh, their senior colleagues there, had a very substantial impact on the way I thought. Uh, one was Phil Teitelbaum. Uh, who was the senior person in uh, what was called physiological psychology in those days, what we would now call behavioral neuroscience. Um, I liked and admired Phil, and uh, I liked his way of doing science. Uh, He wasn't at all mathematical, so he didn't... It would be a little hard to point to um, how he formed my thinking, but... uh, I like the way he, he was a big believer in the big phenomenon, right? If it was if it was only significant at the 0.05 level with an n of 10, it wasn't worth investigating, right? So, and uh, I strongly believe that's the truth. <laughs> I, I think if if you can't see it very clearly with an n of six, it isn't worth <laughs> further study. Um, and in fact, you should be able to see it in every animal very clearly. That's kind of the psychophysicist in me. Then the people in vision, uh, well, then Duncan Luce, uh, who uh, was there only for a year or two uh, when I first came to Penn, but he had a very big impact on me. Another thing that was, math psych was very hot in those days. A lot of it was mathematical learning theory, which went basically nowhere, but, um, Another part of it was the theory of measurement, which grew out of uh, Smitty Stevens' work at Harvard on um, following up on Weber and uh, Fechner, on on trying to uh, determine the functions that map from stimulus variables to uh, percepts. Um, And Smitty was a founding figure in the theory of measurement because when you worked on that after a while, you got to say, well, how would we know when we've succeeded in (laughs) doing this? Because we're trying to measure something we can't actually observe, right? The the percept. And that led to a whole body of work by four very, several very smart people, but they published uh, um, the foundations of measurement. And that was Duncan Luce and uh, David Krantz and um, Amos Tversky and Pat Supis, uh, all of whom I knew. Supis I had taken courses from in uh, at Stanford as an undergraduate. Um, and uh, Duncan I came to know very well in those few years. And then in our first sabbatical, by then he'd moved to uh, UC Irvine. Uh, yeah, UC Irvine. And uh, my wife, Rochelle Gelman, and I uh, spent our sabbatical there uh, uh, working sort of, well, 
influenced by Duncan. And we went there because Duncan was there. Um, and so as you probably know, in neuroscientists are intensely uncomfortable with the notion of representation. You can almost literally see them squirm when you start to talk about representations. And particularly when you start to talk about, for example, what the what a symbol might look like at the neurobiological level, right? Can they even understand like the nature of the question? Like I, I don't even know if it gets that far. Well, right? part, well part of no small part of the squirming is because they don't know what represent, you know, what do you mean by representation, right? Well, in the theory of measurement, they were proving representation theorems, right? <laughs> and if you go to read the foundations of measurement, you'll see it's not bedtime reading. <laughs> it's, it's serious higher level mathematics, right? <laughs> and right in it is what I think is a totally defensible theory of what, or statement of what it is we mean by representation. And I have been explaining that to psychologists and neuroscientists ever since, and philosophers. And I got that directly from Duncan and, and the rest of the gang, but principally from Duncan. And I read their papers on measurement and so on, which were very heavy going for me. I didn't really have the mathematical background for it, but I was deeply interested in what they were doing because that's what I was trying to do. I was... Uh, doing these psychophysical experiments on brain stimulation. This is a continuation of Deutsch, right? I mean, I was, um, and uh, so we, I was looking at the behavior and drawing conclusions about the underlying neurobiology. Now, of course, people in vision have been doing that for more than a century, right? I mean, that goes back to Young and Helmholtz for two centuries, right? I mean, Thomas Young figured out basically that there were three receptors, uh, <laughs> right? Just by the psychophysics that Newton had done before him, right? Uh, the, the discovery of uh, color metamers and the fact that you could produce any color with three different um, um, wavelengths. So um, uh, that was very influential in the, the, the theory that the, if you like the definition of what a representation is that's implicit in the theory of measurement as elaborated by Luce and his co-authors, um, became a foundation of my subsequent thinking. And I've written on this repeatedly. And in fact, at ResearchGate says practically every week, something like 30 or 40 people read my encyclopedia entry on uh, representation. I I often wonder whether that's accurate, where that figure comes from. But anyway. You know, maybe they clicked on the wrong article or something like that. <laughs> yeah. in, in philosophy and in psychology, uh, what I've written has become fairly widely accepted uh, because psychologists were, have been uh, throughout my lifetime in the process of abandoning the behaviorism that they were so strongly committed to and that I was trained in. I mean, when at Stanford and Yale were Hollyan schools, and uh, as far as they were concerned, the only thing worth debating was Skinner versus Hull, right? Both of whom were flaming behaviorists, right? And in graduate school, I became an apostate. Uh, the uh, 
<laughs> I listened to Chomsky. I read some Chomsky. I uh, read some signal detection theory and so on. And I, I, uh, <laughs> I said, no, you guys. I had already, even as an undergraduate, I could see that Paul was very naive. And in fact, again, Tony, Tony Deutsch wrote a lovely short book, which I think people totally lost sight of, called The Structural Basis of Behavior. And again, it wasn't one of these behaviorist things. He was saying, well, what kind of structure could there be inside the brain that would explain uh, the what we would now call the map-following ability of rats and so on? And he did some wonderfully ingenious experiments, much more ingenious than anything Tolman ever did. And then he had this theory that explained them, and I was very captivated by that. And... Um, <clears throat> This led to you know, representations. Well, what do you have in representations? Well, you have symbols, right? And what's a symbol? Well, you have a mapping from something out there in the world to this thing, the symbol that refers to that thing out there in the world. And that symbol enters into computational operations, right? And the theory of measurement was all about the interaction between the measurement process, the mapping from the thing out there in the world to the symbol and what kinds of computations, what arithmetic operations you could apply to the symbols. And uh, I've been ex writing articles explaining that over and over again. And they've been influential, but as I say, not among neuroscientists, with a few exceptions, because they just, the whole notion of representations is just a bridge too far for most neuroscientists. Um, and that's a huge problem for neuroscience. <laughs> Because sooner or later, they're going to have to go there. <laughs> At the moment, conceptually, they're where psychology was when I came to graduate school. Psychology was already abandoning the concept, conceptions that the neuroscientists are committed to. By the way, I'm only talking about the, um, the ones interested in learning and memory. When I give talks to neuroscientists, if I talk to vision people, they think, oh, Galston makes perfect sense. <laughs> they have no problem at all, right? Because <laughs> they've long since got used to the fact that, yeah, look, there are percepts in there and, <laughs> and uh, they're familiar with the psychophysics and the necessary mathematics and so on. But the learning and memory people are generally not mathematically uh, sophisticated and the ones that are are sort of hopelessly committed to these behaviorist ideas, you know, model-free learning and that sort of thing. Um, uh, so, and and the, the reason I think the mathematically sophisticated ones are committed to those ideas is because they want to engage with the neuroscientists. And so they have to try to formulate their thoughts in a way that will go down among the neuroscientists. Uh, and they just have trouble grasping the idea that the neuroscientists may have no clue what the neural basis of memory is. Right? <laughs> they, they, they have to, you know, I, I have more training in neuroscience than most of them do. And believe me, from the inside, <laughs> for someone who's been going to meetings, listening to neuroscientists talk about learning and memory for more than half a century, when I go these days, I sit there and I think, 
this is the same shit I was listening to when I was in graduate school. (laughs) I think, you know, this science is not progressing, (laughs) unlike molecular biology, right? I mean, molecular biology is almost entirely taken place during my adult thing. And I mean, it's been one revelation after the next. Yeah. and, you know, I mean, the ways of thinking have been totally transformed, not once or twice, but three or four times. Yeah. So I, I have a kind of question going back to your personal experience, which would be, uh, do you have a most instructive failure? Um, something that you thought was going to work out that didn't could be an application to something or, you know, a, a project or or anything like that that felt really like a dramatic failure at the time, but you ended up learning a lot from well, all the work that I did, which occupied three decades, on the psychophysics of brain stimulation didn't pan out the way I hoped it would. Um, we learned a lot of... So the idea was, look, uh, the brain stimulation reward is a nerve memory preparation, right? You stimulate a nerve and the animal remembers this in a way that it will direct his, uh, her behavior for the indefinite future. Right. So, uh, I was a student of the early history of neurobiology and the nerve muscle preparation. And I argued, look, we can here, we, we've got a nerve memory preparation. We can follow the nerve to the place where memories are made. And we learned a great deal about the nerve and that's held up extremely well. The the psychophysics that we did is Peter Shizkel among others, but quite a few others have replicated it. It was all very sound. But we were defeated by the neuroanatomy, which is still profoundly puzzling. Um, The, um, because we were stimulating the media forebrain bundle. And we kept saying, well, that's the nerve. And uh, it's this very diffuse and and multiple, there are at least a dozen different ascending and descending systems uh, of axons that project through the medial forebrain bundle in the lateral hypothalamus. And so the challenge was to figure out uh, which of those projections was the nerve, right? And we did figure out some negations. We learned very clearly that it wasn't the dopamine, right? Because we measured the refractor period. We got that directly from Tony Deutsch. And the refractor period is uh, around half a millisecond, and dopamine has a refractor period. Uh, the dopamine axons are measured in several milliseconds, right? So we could say, well, it's not them. Uh, it's a myelinated axon and so on. So we said, okay, so now we'll lesion in front of the electrode and lesion behind the electrode, and we'll figure out whether it's ascending or descending, and we'll measure how much of the nerve we've destroyed. So we made enormous lesions, both in front of and behind the electrode. (laughs) I mean, when you did the histology, you were looking at a hole in the brain where the medial format used to be, right? And it had incredibly small effects on the the nerve in the nerve memory preparation. And this was in the, unfortunately, I left the field 
I abandoned this partly because I could no longer get funding. Um, just before many of the modern track tracing techniques became available. So we used what was a true blue and things that would now be regarded as hopelessly uh, out of date, the virus-based track tracking things, which, uh, and, and of course, the stuff that came out of the molecular biology where you could choose uh, on a molecular basis, the system who, that you were gonna track, right? Uh, I abandoned this work just before those, uh, well, actually about 10 years before those things began to become available. And Peter Schiskel has been using them and making progress since then. But we still don't understand. We don't understand the neuroanatomy. And that was a big disappointment. Uh, and uh, so I gave that up and I uh, turned to other, to other things. So that was certainly a substantial failure. We never followed the nerve to the memory, which was the name of the game. So that was a big failure. Hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes, starting from my first interview over two years ago, and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, and what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January. Then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influenced their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out 
toward my next phase. So I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now back to the show. Uh, I guess uh, here's something. So it, that could be in, you know, sure, that can be on that column. One thing you can definitely put in this success column is uh, you're, all, you're, you're married to an eminent uh, academic, Rochelle Gellman. Um, yes. And uh, <laughs> I'm just fasc- fascinated to hear about that. What's, um, how, did, how did you guys first meet? <laughs> goes back to Tony Deutsch. <laughs> um, so, uh, Rochelle, uh, we met when we were both high. I was hired at Penn the year before she was, and uh, she was hired a year after I was. Um, and we had both worked with Tony Deutsch. I worked with him when he was at Stanford, and he went from Stanford, he actually went to NYU for a year, or two and three maybe. And then he went to uh, UCLA and eventually to UCSD. Um, And she worked with him. He was only at UCLA a year, I think. Uh, She worked with him when she was a graduate student at UCLA. And um, so when she was hired by Penn, in those days, the junior faculty had nothing to do with the hiring. You didn't go to the talks. You had no role in the hiring at all. Um, so when she was hired at Penn, Tony Deutsch called me and he said, Penn just hired the woman you should marry. <laughs> so, uh, he was my mentor, right? Uh, so, so you really well, were a disciple of his in the truest sense yeah. at, every, at every level. <laughs> So when she arrived, uh, that literally the first day she was at Penn, she was sitting in the office they had given her, and she was talking to somebody else. And uh, I came in, introduced myself, more or less stepped in front of the person she was talking to and asked her out on a date. <laughs> Wait, so that was your first interaction with her? Yes. Wow. Wait, so on uh, what basis did he say this is the woman he should marry? What was his... Well, because, yeah. I mean, she, you know, she, she's a member of the Academy, too, and completely on her own. And uh, she's very smart. She was very good looking. Um, uh, she was lots of fun. Um, you know, he he knew me. He knew her. He, he thought we would make a couple, and he was right. And so, I mean, in fact, and we... We hit it off immediately. We were a couple almost immediately from the first date. So that was that was how that happened. Well, that was a hypothesis that turned out to be pretty pretty correct in the in the, yeah, long, right. the long run. Yeah, now we've separated. Now we've celebrated our fifty second anniversary. Incredible! Congratulations. Um, Okay, uh, what is the most common advice that you give to students or people who are sort of coming up in your your line of, of research? Is there anything that you find yourself, you know, sort of uh, consistently saying to, to people who want to do what you do? 
learn to program a computer, <laughs> learn to use one of the serious uh, scientific programming languages, uh, MATLAB or Python or RAR, um, learn some mathematics, uh, try to think about whatever problem you're dealing with the way a mathematician might think about it and ask yourself, well, what's the relevant branch of mathematics and uh, go learn it <laughs> or at least learn some of it, you know, you know. <laughs> So is it the case um, that for someone who wants to do psychology and neuroscience, at least in the kind of vein that, that you followed, the more technical their background and the more technical chops they have, the better. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Mastering the relevant um, mathematics as you go along is also hugely important. Um, <laughs> another big influence on me was Peter Latham, my collaborator at the Ga Gatsby, because uh, when we were both at UCLA, he uh, organized a seminar to read the book uh, by Rika et al., Spike's Explorations of the Neural Code which was my first serious introduction to information theory. And uh, that's had a huge influence in what I've done in the <clears throat> last 20 years. But, you know, I barely knew how to spell information theory at that point. I, I knew it existed, but I had only a very hazy idea about, uh, about it. And uh, I was very impressed by that book. Uh, and the use they made in order to address fundamental questions in neuroscience. Um, and also, I came to understand they have a really lovely, they walk you through the fundamentals of information theory in that book. And so from reading that book, I learned the fundamentals. And then I began to think, well, how could I use, I mean, after all, I, I think information is what's encoded in symbols. <laughs> Uh, if I'm serious about this, I should be able to use information theory to actually um, conceptualize and analyze the uh, problems I'm working on. And I've been able to do that, and it's been intensely rewarding. And uh, I'm convinced that we have, that my collaborators, Peter Balsam and uh, Tim Sheehan, and I have developed a, a very far-reaching and fundamentally different way of thinking about associative learning um, that's rooted in information theory and that therefore is much more quantitative um, and uh, much more mathematical, no free, almost no free parameters. You know, not, it's nothing like... <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but I don't know if you, I don't know what your own background is. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, uh, behaviorist learning theory and so on, partly because it's gone hugely out of fashion uh, in the last 50 years. But uh, Alan Wagner, who was uh, uh, untenured faculty at Yale when I was there as a graduate student on his way to becoming tenured faculty, which was very rare in those days. Um, the uh, he and Bob, my colleague Bob Rascorla, of course, produced the Rascorla Wagner theory, but it had various shortcomings that 
Wagner set out to remedy with his SOP theory. And the SOP theory uh, is would be my exhibit A for what a good theory in science should not look like. And, and, and Bob Rescorla and I agreed about this. In fact, Bob said in a seminar once where we were both participating, he said SOP was the only theory he'd ever encountered that was harder to re- understand and remember than the data it explained. <laughs> <laughs> So was it, was it just that it was complicated and and like you said like was, more more dimensions than the original data? It was full of ad hoc. It was okay. the damnedest jury rigged mess you ever saw, and it it almost literally had an uncountable number of free parameters, uh, which meant that it had infinite wiggle room. Right. Uh, uh, no matter, you could throw random data at it and you could wiggle. There were so many parameters, you could get it to uh, to roughly uh, accommodate random data, right? Um, so, so it was at some level untestable. Uh, it, it lacked any clear principles. I mean, it was full of stuff that, well, like we got to deal with this, okay. Let's make this half-assed assumption, right? I mean, it was. <laughs> let's assume that these things decay in steps, <laughs> and so on. And it was just full of that kind of stuff. Uh, not, none of it motivated, you know. All well, it was motivated by well, look, we've got all these things we can't explain, and what can we do to explain them? But it hadn't. There was no. To me, really good theories have a certain elegance. You think, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's deep. I don't think anyone who ever read SOP thought that's deep. (laughs) I thought, well, that's a kludge piled on a kludge piled on a kludge. (laughs) Um, That's hilarious. Oh, by the way, you were going to ask me about great books. books. Here's a book everybody should read. Cool. The Eighth Day of Creation by Horace Judson Freeland. It's the classic history of molecular biology from about 1930 till the late 1970s. It's fabulously well-written. It's got all the gossip, all the personalities, and it's a fabulous presentation of the science. If you read that book, you will know a lot of molecular biology and particularly the foundations. And uh, it's one of the really fabulous books. So I've, I've been touting it for years to everyone. I will right. encourage people to add that to their shelves, the top of their reading queue. Um, that's a great recommendation. I'll, I'll add it to my own as well. I haven't read it. And uh, it sounds based off your recommendation. Easy money. Sounds great. I promise you will enjoy it. And, and right behind that, you should read uh, Jacob's uh, The Logic of Life. Okay. Um, um, yeah, very elegantly written, and and again, the foundations of molecular biology, but from a, a brilliant thinker, very and who writes like an angel, yeah. uh, who uh, who's you know really laying out the big picture. Okay, is there a third yeah. book that you were going to name as well? Uh well, that Rika Adol book that I've already remembered yeah. uh, mentioned Spike's explorations of the neural code, and also. Uh, 
uh, Sean Carroll's uh, Endless Forms Most Beautiful. It, it updates after you've read. So the, the eighth day of creation ends in the late 70s. At that point, we had no clue how you got from the information in the gene to an actual biological structure. And then uh, decades after that, they discovered the homeobox genes and uh, and a lot of that, followed, the whole Evo Devo followed from that. And there's a lovely book describing that by called Endless Forms Most Beautiful. It's a quote from uh, Darwin. Uh, and that's another extremely readable book. And it sort of brings you up to date on uh, how you get from the information in the genes to biological structure. Love it. All right, yeah. cool, Randy. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Randy Gallistol. Thank you for listening. Like I said, uh, next week is going to be my conversation with Sam Gershman. And he actually mentions Randy and, and, and the work that he's done and how that's influenced him. So if that is of interest to you, definitely keep an eye out for that episode. If you want to check out more of my work, you can do so at my Substack newsletter. That is codycommerce.substack.com. So I'd really appreciate if you take a look at what's going on with all that. But thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Thank you.